This is Neijing Now, prioritizing well-being. Neijing is the vitality that shields us from disease. Neijing Now, placing and taking responsibility for the health of the individual and the planet. From molecular biology to global ecology, from political, social, economics to psychology and spirituality. Neijing Now, demystifying medicine, empowering host resistance. We can be found on the web at neijingnow.org. N-E-I-J-I-N-G-N-O-W.org. I'm Dr. Jayashree Chandra, and I welcome you to another edition of Exploring Neijing Now. In this episode, Professor Jennifer Wolch offers strategies to increase our exposure to bacteria. A sufficiently high level of sewage treatment so that they're able to recycle drinking water. And Jeff Conant, environmental human rights campaigner, explains how imperialism has shaped the ways in which we manage our human excrement. Quote-unquote civilized ways of dealing with waste are actually imperial ways of dealing with waste. And friends and family share their thoughts on squatting versus sitting. Yeah, you know, free your mind and your ass will follow. Professor Jennifer Wolch is Dean of the College of Environmental Design at the University of California, Berkeley. She talks with us about how we can build more bugs into our lives by improving our exposure to a large range of biological organisms in order to maintain a healthier microbiome within our bodies. She is one of the pioneer investigators of animal-society relations in cities and has proposed strategies for human-animal coexistence in an urbanizing world. She also has an expertise in urban homelessness and the delivery of affordable housing and human services for poor people. So she shares with us her perspectives on access to toilets for that population within the United States. Dr. Wolch, welcome to Naging Now. Pleased to be able to talk to you too. So as you know, we've been doing a series on digestion and elimination. It may seem far-fetched to think of architecture and environmental design as having something to do with our digestion and elimination. However, we've also been talking about the microbiology of the intestines and also how the microbiology of our internal world interacts with the microbiology of our external world. In that vein, I wanted to talk with you about our interaction with biological organisms and how we live promotes or impedes our interaction with biodiversity? It's a very interesting question. On the one hand, we've over time tried to make buildings more and more cut off from the environment, inoperable windows, everything's air conditioned. And there are reasons for that. If you think about tenements in the 19th century and polluted cities, Access to the environment often meant access to disease vectors, waterborne, airborne. The environment was full of risk, making buildings, on the one hand, have ventilation, but be places of safety and protection from the outside world was important. We're at a point now where, however, we might want to really think about what the long-term implications of that kind of sealing off are. You know, one of the things that always strikes me is advertisements for antimicrobial soap and sprays. We know that actually we need to build up immunity. We have to actually introduce 
potentially harmful things into our realm or else we're going to be more susceptible to uh, attack, as it were. I think we need to think about a happy medium with respect to building design. There's, I think, a couple factors. One is the weather. One of our reasons for sealing off is just comfort. If you live in a colder climate, you really do need to have insulated houses and you need to keep things a little bit airtight. Uh, whereas if you're living in the tropics, you can camp outside. Certainly climate and comfort are critical. On the other hand, it's possible to have very well insulated buildings in colder climates that allow more circulation of outside air. Technology is getting very, very sophisticated. What kind of new technologies are making it possible for having more access to outside air while staying energy efficient? One of the things that's happened over time is that we've built buildings and we've conditioned all the air when people are actually only exposed to a small fraction of that air. So one thing that you can think about is how to allow occupants to have control over their immediate surrounding environment so they can be warmer or cooler while not having the building quite so sealed up. We're paying attention to making people comfortable and not just saying this entire you know, 50-story building has to be at 68 degrees at all time that kind of shift does two things. One, it may radically increase energy efficiency, and it also gives people more power and control over their immediate environment, and that actually makes people happier and more comfortable and more productive. Fantastic. That actually reminds me of something that I do. Whenever I don't have guests in my house, I take a hot water bottle, and I put it under my sweater, and that's how I heat myself, and so I don't have to use the central heating, and that's very low cost and low tech. Yes, and that's a very old tried-and-true way of keeping oneself warm. Because we've gotten so used to air conditioning and central heating, we actually forget that you can put on a sweater, that you can wear socks. It does actually make a difference if they use some of these alternative strategies. So the other part of sealing off our environments, as a child, I would go back with my family to India and visit relatives and grandparents, and their houses were really quite open. And granted, it's India and it's much warmer, but in northern India, it does get cold in the winter as well. There was more interaction with animals. Cats would kind of come in and out of the house or monkeys. There was a cow in the courtyard. One set of grandparents did have a dog. Peacocks walk through the house. I mean, they'd actually come into the house. And even just geckos and mice. And there wasn't this attempt to necessarily kill them or remove them. They just kind of passed through. The design of the house was with a central courtyard and birds coming in. We don't have that here. I think in Western culture, we've had a very, very deep-seated way of thinking about nature and culture as these kind of dual spheres. For many, many centuries, the goal has been to master nature, so that culture is dominant over nature, and also, of course, use nature for particular human ends. Also to exclude nature. The nature-culture dualism on the ground translates into city-country, and, of course, we have a long history of walling cities to keep nature out. Now, it has to be said that if you look at European cities in the 19th century or U.S. cities in the 19th century, pigs were roaming down the street, they were eating garbage, and there were a lot of critters around. But with more concern about public health, increasing human population densities, and increasing distancing of people from uh, any kind of agrarian experience, you had slaughterhouses and meat markets being moved out of cities. 
as an urban resident, you didn't see a drover with cattle driving a herd down your street, or you didn't see pigs. Increasingly, zoning and other kinds of urban planning tools relegated those kinds of agriculturally linked uses to places in the distant suburbs or exurbs. There's also something that uh, happened in terms of class relations. People who had barnyard animals in their in their urban properties were seen as somehow related to a lower class. So a sign of a city moving up and having a more prosperous residence was to actually try to marginalize those kinds of uses and make rules against having chickens and cows and goats and pigs and other kinds of animals. At the same time, you have people becoming enthralled with pets. Most cultures have had pets for many, many millennia, but in the case of Western Europe and the U.S. and also places like Australia, New Zealand, you know, the colonies, you had the rise of a kind of pet fencing culture. This idea that these animals were part of the family, we have very curious relations with animals. Some are on a pedestal and protected, others go by the billion into slaughter, and others have a place literally at the dining room table. Exactly, exactly. There's a, a kind of rise of science and technology. I mean, even germ theory, for example, has made people over decades worry about what they're coming in contact with in a way that they perhaps did not before. We have that kind of dynamic that plays out in terms of cleaning products and washing and bathing and all of the routines that we kind of take for granted. But, you know, 100 years ago, people didn't have a shower a day. They didn't use the same kinds of, you know, antibacterial cleaning products. The other thing is I think that as people have become much more urbanized, their understanding and knowledge about the animal world is radically compromised. That leads to fear and even greater desire to exclude any critter that they don't understand from their midst. Exactly. The other thing I think to remember also with respect to some of the disease-related fears is that when you have large numbers of people living in badly designed, poorly ventilated structures, you have, you know, a symbiosis with vermin, and they do pose dangers. Lots of children living in tenements in New York City at the turn of the century got rat bites. Some of the process of urbanization and the cohabitation that we've, you know, had for millennia with some of these species became problematic. Yes, you have human population density and animal population density, and to find the right balance is tricky. I know you have some expertise in homelessness, and I also serve a homeless population. Can you speak a little bit about people who are nomadic or unhoused, how they interact with the natural world? Homeless people who sleep rough uh, are often sleeping in parks or under uh, infrastructure like freeway bridges or in wildland areas on the edge. What I have observed is also that homeless people have animals that they're with. Yes. So the other issue about being homeless is sanitation. I see increasingly in San Francisco more human excrement on the sidewalks and access to public toilets. It's very hard to find a place where you can eliminate your waste. <laughs> this is a huge issue and it's a, pol a political issue. At one point before the rise of widespread homelessness in the 1980s in the U.S., you had a lot of public restrooms. And you also had 
stores and restaurants and so on, that uh, gas stations, no one objected if you walked off the street and said, can I use the restroom? Over time, in areas that have more homeless people, uh, store owners have made those restrooms off limits to anybody except customers. A lot of public restrooms have been closed down because they're such a source of nuisance. So what do homeless people do? Well, you do find excrement in the street, which presents a health problem. It's also a surface runoff contamination issue in terms of the ocean, uh, if it's in large enough amounts. What some communities have done is purchase outdoor restrooms that are self-cleaning. Periodically, they kind of hose themselves down so they're able to keep clean. The problem with all of these kinds of solutions or porta-potties or anything like that is because homeless people don't have privacy and they don't have places to go, whether they're normal, everyday kinds of taking care of yourself, your body, or, or, or so on, or it's prostitution, it's drug use, the public toilets become places where that activity happens. And that in and of itself becomes a problem and they can be very dangerous places. I don't know that anybody has developed really adequate solutions to this problem. So that brings me to the point of our sanitation system. We've designed a system where we put our waste in the water and then we take it out of the water. We're heading into an era where fresh water is going to become a serious scarcity. So I wondered if you had any thoughts about new ways to think about our sanitation system. Innovative environmental design, or especially landscape architects and also civil engineers, have increasingly looked to alternatives to large-scale sewage treatment, using constructed marshes, for example, constructed wetlands, you know, use biological processes and ecological processes to clean water. We're also seeing a lot more gray water reuse. We can now think about buildings where once a building is supplied with water, that's all it gets because it is recycling all its water. It's purifying water to such an extent that it's reusable not only for landscaping and other kind of gray water uses, but it's potable. We have obviously a long way to go, but I think technologically we're seeing whole water districts now go toward a sufficiently high level of sewage treatment so that they're able to recycle drinking water. What do you think about just going waterless? Composting toilets and technologies such as that, they take a lot of knowledge and maintenance to actually keep them working. I think it's a question about whether they're sufficiently easy at the moment in terms of their technology to be really widespread. We've seen waterless urinals be used in a lot of buildings, a lot of new buildings. And to the extent that they work well, that technology uh, will spread, which also will save water. Experience with composting toilets is such that it's not quite as a generalizable technology as we might hope. The other thing, however, that is happening is places, and I'm here thinking about examples from Mexico, you have very localized treatment plants treating wastewater from small communities. We might begin to see more of that. There's a lot of discussion about maintaining the biodiversity of this planet, and we're losing species by the minute. How would you propose that we not only improve or maintain our biodiversity as a planet, but also improve our interaction with a larger variety of organisms? That's a huge question, and it's only going to become more dominant as the climate warms, and we're going to have to face whole new ecological regimes that we don't know very much about. We need linked reserves of wildland habitat to allow enough mobility and enough genetic diversity. If you want 
wolf populations, for example, to thrive, you can't just put them in a bubble and draw a line around them on a map around their reserve area. They need to be able to interact with other wolf populations. They need to re-inhabit perhaps a part of the range that they used to inhabit, or in a changing climate, go to new parts of the range. If you cut them off from those migration and, and movement patterns, you're going to ultimately uh, lead to local, at least local extirpation, if not extinction. Animals have very, very different home ranges. I mean, some small creatures, if you put a road in, they're never going to cross that road. How do you think about landscape ecology and landscape architecture in a way that allows for that kind of movement to happen. We have to actually take responsibility for learning a lot more about the animals that we interact with. You know, we're not used to being part of the food chain, and we don't want to be part of the food chain. I don't want to be eaten by a cougar in the Berkeley Hills. But on the other hand, we have the responsibility to accept the risk that comes along with being part of an ecosystem and to minimize the risks. We need to really be much more knowledgeable about the natural world in which we live. Animals are kind of a vector for disease-producing agents, but also normal microbiological agents that would actually be beneficial for the diversity of our microbiome inside our bodies. Also, just interacting with plants and soil. Do you have any suggestions of how we could design our lives or our living environments or our cities or our spaces so that we actually have more fruitful interactions with soils and plants. People's desires to have access to soils and plants is really powerful. It's a challenge, I think, to think about vertical cities, dense cities, the, especially in Asia, which, you know, it's really the only way you, you're going to preserve agricultural land and habitat is to really have dense places. You have to design them with the understanding that people want and need access to plants and soils and at least some kinds of wildlife. I think what you're seeing is the rise of green roofs, the rise of mid-level gardens in tall buildings. You also see uh, some buildings that have foliage on their outsides. That's kind of trendy. More importantly, you're going to see building designs that have enough natural ventilation and air circulation that they can actually support gardens as part of the design, not just the roofs, but other parts of building decks, building floor plates that will be exposed or be conservatories or other places where people can interact. Given all you know about the importance of interacting with a large diversity of organisms, would you prefer to live in an urban environment or a rural environment? Cities have a lot to offer, and I think that in the U.S. in particular, there's been a long history of anti-urban sentiment and an idea that, you know, you're really more genuine, you're a real person if you live in a rural environment. And it goes back to Thomas Jefferson and the idea of agrarian democracy and, and also pollution of industrial cities. Many people left Europe to get away from that. It's a complex set of ideas about cities. The fact is that cities are generators of ideas, of culture, of change, dynamism, and innovation. So they're very important. And, and I also think that they're important from a wildlife perspective, because if everybody lived at low densities, you know, in exurban areas, we would be just chewing up more habitat than we're already chewing up, which is horrendous. The key is building nature into everyday urban environments in a way that gives people a lot of access, including places to grow food, which is very satisfying. 
Great. Do you have anything else you'd like to add? I just want to thank you for a great conversation. Excellent. I've enjoyed it as well. Thank you so much for being on our show. Thank you. Professor Jennifer Wolch, Dean of the College of Environmental Design at the University of California, Berkeley. Jeff Conant is an author, journalist, and environmental human rights campaigner with nearly two decades of experience working on international environment and development issues. He's the author of A Poetics of Resistance, The Revolutionary Public Relations of the Zapatista Insurgency, and co-author of A Community Guide to Environmental Health. He currently directs Friends of the Earth's International Forests Program. It's wonderful to have you back on the show, Jeff. Thank you so much. Thank you. In our last conversation, we were speaking about ecological toilets, and we touched on the subject of, as a society, which class of people are relegated to managing our waste. You know a lot about how different cultures operate all over the world. You're a very internationally traveled and renowned activist, and you have a lot to say about this subject. I sure do. You know, as I get to thinking about it, quote-unquote, civilized ways of dealing with waste are actually imperial ways of dealing with waste, which means, you know, what an empire does is it, by the very nature of empire, it either enslaves people or it enslaves, you know, what we could call the gifts of nature. It enslaves biodiversity. It enslaves ecology, turning the planet into a set of resources. You know, that's what our standard sewage system is, is it's enslaving the water to do our bidding, ultimately, that is not good for the water. And ultimately, because we are integrated into the environment in ways that are far beyond our capacity to even understand, it's not good for us. Our bodies are made up primarily of water. So anything that impacts the water impacts us. Right. From an imperial perspective, whether we're talking about the Han Chinese Empire, whether we're talking about the Mughal Empire, whether we're talking about the British Empire, the Roman Empire, the U.S. Empire, what you want to do as an empire is dominate and enslave another people and have them do your dirty work for you, whether it's your agriculture, whether it's your waste management, uh, whether it's constructing your highways and your pyramids. Cleaning your house and cleaning your toilet. Yeah, exactly. So it's in that sense that ecological sanitation systems, diverse, decentralized, place-based sanitation systems where people who use the toilet clean and maintain the toilet rather than relegating that to some underclass. That's where this becomes socially revolutionary. Part of understanding this is looking at the built environment around us. You know, there's a saying that if there were buildings higher than two stories tall, there was slavery involved somewhere along the line. It's 
important that we recognize this, not as a way of shaming and guilting ourselves, but it's fundamentally part of what civilization is and always has been. If we want to address these patterns, if we want to get out of these patterns, were that even possible, we need to begin by looking at the very basic functions of our lives, how we eat, how our waste is managed. You know, most of our audience, they're going to think, well, I'm not enslaving anybody. I need to poop, and the toilet that's available to me is the flush toilet. I don't really care what happens to it after I press go. I have a flush toilet in my house. I use it all the time. You know, of course, we're all in this system, in this built environment. You know, when we stop to think about them, they're really not necessarily the ideal systems, which is to say there's no individual answer either. Um, I do know people here in Oakland, California, who have built compost toilet systems in their houses because they find the question of pooping into the water to be odious because that's, you know, where their consciousness has taken them. For the average person, this is very difficult, even impossible to do. It's illegal to do. Why is it illegal to do? Public health laws say here in California, they regulate things to a, an incredibly high degree because you're dealing with chemicals, you're dealing with industrial facilities, you're dealing with things much more complicated and much more uh, toxic than human waste. You're also dealing with a high-density population. But why would it be illegal to build your own composting toilet for your own household use? That's a very good question. It seems like it would actually be beneficial for the public health because you're not contaminating water, you're not impacting the bay, you're actually decreasing the load on the public work system. Right. Well, the way the public health paradigm is, it's not about expecting each person to take responsibility. It's about actually dominating and controlling the environment with the assumption that people are not capable of empowering themselves, but that actually people are the problem, are the pathogens, are the cause of ill health. You know, if we just decided tomorrow to eliminate our public work systems and have everyone build a compost toilet in their house, I don't think that's going to go very well because it's not part of our culture. You know, this isn't something that you can change overnight, but I do think it's important to recognize the social, cultural, historic patterns of domination and control, of exploitation, of marginalization that go into our very, you know, sanitation systems, our highways, our houses, our office buildings. Do you have any idea about how we came about to this current system of the flush and forget toilet? We obviously have not had our flush and forget system for more than a couple hundred years, right? So obviously we were excreting our waste before then. So do you have any idea how, how we evolved to this system? There are some really great books out there on the topic there's one called The Last Taboo that came out a couple of years ago by a, a woman named Maggie Black. In any case, there was something used in upper-class houses in the uh, 17th, 18th, 19th centuries that was called an earth closet, which was essentially a dry toilet or a compost toilet where the waste was taken out by the servants. There was also the uh, chamber pot. You know, it was a bucket that you would poo and pee into in your house. This was standard in Europe in the 
you know, 18th, 19th century. And that was also emptied by the chambermaid. Yeah, right. So there you have domination, exploitation, and avoidance of responsibility, we could say. So I believe it was the French who developed the uh, waterborne toilet, and then it took off in the United States uh, and in Europe in the 19th and 20th centuries, and very quickly became, you know, almost the very definition of civilization is, you know, having indoor plumbing. And now it's spread pretty much all over the world. Yeah, and part of the problem is, you know, if water were a renewable resource, were an infinite resource, and it turns out the amount of water on the planet is finite. And decreasing. And decreasing. So in the U.S., you know, we have sewage treatment plants which do their job quite well. They're energy intensive, they're water intensive, they're uh, land use intensive. In a lot of other places, you have flush toilets with no sewage treatment plants. So you've got massive cholera and other waterborne diseases related to the fact that this essentially Western imperial engineering system has been developed in places where it didn't naturally evolve. And so you don't have the whole system. There's a high status to having indoor toilet. And a flush toilet. I can actually very clearly remember when my grandmother in India got a flush toilet, and it was a huge step up in her status in her neighborhood. Mm-hmm. But did that town get a sewage treatment plant? No, the sewage actually went straight out into the open gutter that ran along the sidewalk. Right. You have high status right inside the house, but outside of the house, the status isn't uh, <laughs> isn't quite so high. And so in a situation like that, it may be that the indoor flush toilet is not the appropriate sanitation solution, which doesn't mean that people, countries without the financial means to build these things need to live in indignity, need to do things in a way that is sub-civilized or, you know, but that's the stigma. When I was studying ecological sanitation, some of the most valuable lessons I learned is recognizing that with any technology, you don't want to necessarily go from nothing to what's considered the highest tech option, that there's a range of choices. And in order to pick the technology that is the most responsible, that's the most ecological, you have to first recognize what your needs are, what your abilities are, what your ecosystem demands. Are you in a dry place? Are you in a wet place? Are you in a highly densely populated place? Are you in a rural area? And from there, you can make decisions on, you know, what kind of sanitation system is going to be best that take into account, first and foremost, human dignity and the needs of the environment. Well, I think there's a lot of cultural aspects and, as you mentioned, political aspects that come into how waste is managed, whether it's human excrement or whether it's just our trash and our garbage. Yeah, and one of the things that ties together this whole conversation is the very concept of waste. In a natural system, there is no waste. So waste is a product of a poorly designed human system. A big piece of what we mean by waste is actually mixed waste. That's implied. So that, say, where we live in the Bay Area, we have great recycling options. In order to recycle, you need to separate out your metal from your glass, from your plastic, from your paper, because all of those things need to be treated down the line differently. 
when you mix them together, what happens is they go into an incinerator, they go into a landfill, the incinerator spews out toxic pollution, the landfill leaches out toxic pollution into the water because the problem is mixed waste. Sewage is the same way. If our waste is filled with, you know, antibiotics and hormones from the crap industrial food that we're eating. Or the medicines that we're taking. Or the medicines that we're taking. If the water is filled with chemicals, with paint thinner, with solvents, with cleaning detergents, then you've got a mixed waste nightmare, you know, that either continues to be a problem for a long, long time, like a landfill tends to. When you send mixed sewage down your toilet when it gets to the water treatment plant ultimately through the various drains in the city system the only thing that really gets taken out are the solids whatever settles out all the chemicals and heavy metals and pesticides and oils they go straight out into the water. Mm -hmm. Right when we talk about solid waste uh, we talk about separation at source separating out everything before it goes to be treated because that way you're not dealing with a toxic mess at the end of the pipe. We need to do the same thing with sewage. And when we talk about the source, I mean, we're talking about what are we putting into the system. If you put in toxics, you get out toxics. That's where this becomes a much larger conversation about reducing our use and dependency on, you know, pesticides, on chemical fertilizers, on antibiotics, which are used way too much, on uh, hormones, all of these things, which are essentially uh, what makes the chemical industry wealthy and what has poisoned the planet. We now know full well over decades and centuries. I mean, that's the interesting point where simply talking about the way we manage our human waste, it actually opens on to the need to completely redesign our our industrial civilization. And our concept of what makes us healthy. We have some idea that the more medicines we take, the more healthy we will be, and the more chemicals we use, the cleaner our environment will be, and the more efficiently we can live. Yeah, and there's something that I'm, I'm sure you probably deal with a lot on aging now, which is this idea of purity, this idea that if we somehow destroy the microbes in our environment, in our internal environment, our external environment, that that's healthy. And this is a certain ideal of what health is. And in fact, that's the very opposite of what health is. The idea of purity, again, is uh, it's an imperial value, whether we're talking about the Han Chinese Empire or the Roman Empire or the British Empire. And that bridges onto ethnic purity, racial purity, species purity, this idea that you can eliminate the dirt from your environment. Well, it turns out that we are the dirt in our environment, that we are made up of bacteria. You know, we're part of the web of life. And it's only once we recognize our proper place in that web that we can have physical, social, spiritual health. Yeah, I mean, in terms of bacteria, we're just a container for the bacteria to give us our life. Mm -hmm. And so having, you know, having a healthy relationship with the bacteria in your environment is what is needed, as opposed to having a idea that we need to dominate, control, and eliminate them, because that's ultimately death. Wow. So you've mentioned the Han Dynasty, the Roman Dynasty, <laughs> the, the Mughal Empire. Um, do, you, do you have anything specifically that you could educate us about in terms of how these empires have been imperialistic and what that has to do with our excrement? Isn't that what we... I thought we were done with that. Um, 
Well, it's interesting to think of our toilet systems as having something to do with imperialism. It's really like it's a, a concept that I had not thought of before. And the way that you're explaining it is really remarkable to think about the untouchable class in India having fewer political and human rights because we don't want to manage our excrement. Mm -hmm. Yeah, exactly. I mean, when I say imperial, I don't mean it in the sense of sending troops to a foreign shore to invade and dominate like the U.S. does everywhere, which is part of how I came to be so concerned about empire as an issue. What I mean is systems that are based on systematic exploitation, systems that are based on systematic forgetting creating a situation where we are expected and bound to forget that we're destroying the potable drinking water, that we're shitting in the river, that there's a chambermaid cleaning out our waste. Because either you acknowledge that you are dominant and dominating and you celebrate that fact as aristocrats throughout history have always done, or you try to... Uh, forget about it and ignore it because we're essentially exploiting ourselves. Well said. There's also a very practical advantage to actually managing your own waste and that you have a direct experience of the impact of what you're eating and then how it's getting digested and then eliminated. In Ayurveda, the Ayurvedic physician will grill you about the quality, consistency, frequency, every detail about your excrement, that's like a really important part. And most of us really don't know that because we flush and we forget. Indeed, what it makes me think of, one of the old English word for shit is night soil. What that brings up for me is the Western psychological idea, uh, the Jungian idea actually of the shadow self. Certainly throughout European history, you know, there's an emphasis on separating the upper, the mind, the, the spirit, uh, the heart, from the lower body functions. Th there's an analogy there to the shadow self, to the side of your psyche that you would rather not deal with, the ugly side. Essentially, as a society, we deal with our human waste in that sense, in the sense that we deal with our shadow self. We'd rather not think about it, and we've created systems whereby we don't have to think about it. Ultimately, we will have to think about it. I'm afraid so. Well, this has been a very enlightening conversation. Thank you so much, Jeff. It's been, once again, a real honor and a pleasure to talk with you. Thanks for tackling these sometimes unpleasant and obscure subjects. It's really important stuff. Thanks. Jeff Conant, author, journalist, and environmental human rights campaigner. I 
asked several friends in India and the United States, as well as my family in Jalandhar, to share their thoughts and experiences with squatting toilets, the seated commode, toilet paper, and water for personal hygiene. Rina Karia is an independent filmmaker and works in design and branding in the San Francisco Bay Area. Tell me about your experience with the squatting toilet or the uh, seated commode. Well, I grew up in the States, so I've always had a seated commode, but we went to India regularly. Whenever I was younger, they had the Indian toilets, and then if we were out, there would be Indian toilets, and I would use them there. Otherwise, they've since upgraded. Everyone has a Western toilet now. Well, so it's interesting to me that you call it an upgrade. I think for them, it was an upgrade. Why is it an upgrade for them? You have money to make the change. So that, I mean, that in itself is a upgrade, I guess. It's an interesting concept that the seated commode is considered an upgrade from the squatting toilet. As a physician, from my perspective, the squatting toilet is far superior. Speaking in English is kind of a status thing and perhaps the Western toilet is too. Yeah, so it's a very cultural thing. It's actually not an actual thing. I mean, when you're when you're squatting on an Indian toilet, really your your colon, your rectum, it's all like the trajectory is perfectly aligned for ease of exit. So, do you have any recollection of uh, using the squatting toilet? Oh yeah, definitely. It's hard to avoid when you go to India. It's still very much there. I actually have a real strong preference for squatting. Obviously, I have a real, I'm biased. And I actually find it's very difficult these days to find a squatting toilet. You really have to search far and wide. Everybody's really making that change. Oh. Yeah, it is much easier to find a Western toilet. But like if you're on the trains or you're in a public place, and then if you go to the airport, they still have both options. I don't dislike the squatted toilet. It's it's kind of fun. <laughs> What, what What's fun about it? It's just different because I'm going to visit, you know, it's like you check it off your bucket list of things to do. It's on your bucket list. That's hilarious. <laughs> it should be on everyone's bucket list. I mean, I think the only problem is I've definitely peed in my pants because if you're wearing tight jeans, it's hard to get it out of the way. Oh, I see. I see. I see. Okay. Okay. Because on the seated toilet, you just have to pull part way down. Yeah. But on a, a squatter, you really do have to get it all and, the way down. Right. Yeah. Right, right, right. And then there is also an art to the squat, right? I mean, it's like you can't squat so that your weight is over on your toes and your heels are lifted. Your thighs cannot be parallel to the ground. Your thighs actually have to be pretty perpendicular to the ground and your butt has to be right by your heels. Yeah. I wonder if it's in our genes because <laughs> I have a lot of which genes, the tight ones or the oh, DNA, the DNA genes. <laughs> um, I have a lot of Western friends who just can't squat like that. Oh, they could when they were toddlers. It's oh. just been trained out of them. Oh, yeah, because I guess it's not something you do every day. Yeah, because, you know, if you watch toddlers, you know, they'll be toddling around and then suddenly they have to poop and they go yeah. in their diapers and they just squat down to do it. It's in our instincts to go like that. We've just been upgraded out of it so to speak <laughs> that's that's good to know it's not just brown jeans <laughs> it's not blue jeans or brown jeans <laughs> is there anything else you'd like to share about your experiences comparing the seated commode and the squatting toilet pros to the squatting toilet there isn't a puddle of water underneath you so there's rarely backsplash 
Yeah, the splash factor is gross, especially in a public toilet. Yeah. Yeah. It's it's totally disgusting. Yeah. But public squatting toilets are very disgusting. But at least in the public squatting toilet, nothing of your body is touching anything of the toilet. That's true. But you're still hovering very close to it. But hover is still better than contact. I'd rather be wearing shoes on a squatted toilet than have my bare bum on the seated commode. True. That's true. Okay, so pros, cons. Yeah, you can read on a seated one. You could read on a squatting one too, but probably not as easy. You're more focused on using the restroom. Right. Awareness, mindfulness, get the job done, get in and out. Mm -hmm. You're doing one thing. Yeah. Yeah. It's time efficient. Yeah. It's not a position that you really want to keep in for a while. So you're just like, let me get through this. It's a results-oriented toilet. Yeah. And maybe I just haven't been to very nice squatted bathrooms, but they're you know they're not really fancy. The aesthetics are completely modifiable. Oh, yeah, they are. See, I think the concept of the upgrade needs to be revised here, but you can create a squatting toilet as luxurious as you'd like. It's true. There's nothing so luxurious about the commode either. I mean, you, you could design your toilet for luxury as well. You can. I've just never seen one. All right, so I think we have a business uh, proposition (laughs) happening here. (laughs) We have some scheming to do. Yeah, Yeah, get a toilet that keeps all of your system aligned for faster evacuation. So like slings, ropes, pulleys? Oh, yeah. You could add some TRX resistance training into it. (laughs) You can hang from the ceiling (laughs) as you're squatting. I think think we're on to something here. (laughs) The next big thing. All right. Any other last comments? Eat your vegetables. That helps. And drink plenty of water. Thank you. Thank you, Rina. That was fun talking to you. Thanks. Shalaja Kale is a solo permaculture farmer in one of the driest districts of Andhra Pradesh. Notice that on your farm, you have built a Western-style toilet. It has both. It's both an Indian as well as a Western because we have guests here who find it difficult to squat. It's just that it's a flap there, but if you remove the flap, you can use it as an Indian toilet too. Do you have any preference? I prefer Indian. Why? I find it simpler. I feel I can defecate better sitting on an Indian toilet. Any other uh, advantages? Advantages? I just find it more cleaner. Yeah. Why is it cleaner? It's just that I feel it's been used. I mean, too many bums have used it. <laughs> so I feel like cleaning before I use Thank you. My uncle Atul Bhalla at age 43. Do you use a Western style toilet or an Indian style toilet? Only Western style. Did you grow up using a Western style toilet? No, no. Previously we used to have Indian style. And have you noticed the difference in the ease of evacuation? I think Western style is more comfortable, but logically Indian is much better. Can you explain why it's more comfortable? Because of the sitting posture and all that. Uh-huh. But due to my parents, we have to shift to this Western style. Can you can you explain that a little bit more? Like my mother and my father, they could not sit like that in the Indian style. So we had only one bathroom in our house. So we shifted to that, to Western style. Before Western toilets came to India, everybody only had Indian style toilets. Uh, the older people must also be still having uh, knee pains and hip pains and difficulty with getting around. So how did they manage uh, with the Indian-style toilet? 
I think only they can answer. Yeah, but they must be uncomfortable. It is the ease which slowly and slowly penetrates into your lifestyle, and you are accustomed to that. Can you speak to any difference in ease of evacuation of contents of the colon? Yeah, like Indian seats are much better if one can afford to afford not economically but physically. You are saying that in theory or by actual experience? By actual experience. Yeah, Indian styles are easier for evacuating. Thank you very much. My aunt Manjula Bhalla at age 43. Another thing which I find different from the western habits we indians use water for cleaning but uh, in west they use tissue papers rolls and we somehow find it a dirty habit although ecologically might be it might be saving water but still we can't do without water we feel we are neat and clean only after we have cleaned well with water washed our hands with soap you may think that you you're using a lot of water but you have to take into consideration that to make toilet paper you have to cut down trees saving in one way but you're using it in another way thank you for your comment welcome my late grand uncle dharmveer bhalla at age 76 aapko roz you go every day bilkul absolutely ekdam sahi perfectly not just once but twice a day a friend of mine used to say bola i only ask for two things from god first i just want to sleep well at night and i want to go party in the morning this is all i ask of god if i have no problems with anyone my mind will be at peace and i will sleep well If my body is healthy I will go party in the morning. Fantastic. Badhiya. Aap to Do you use the western toilet? Western. I used to use the other toilet. But now my knees hurt in my old age. That's why I use the English, the western. Aapko Do you feel there's a difference between the two? Western or uh, Indian? Kuch fark nahi. No difference. in getting it out no no difference in the old days before western toilets how did the elderly use the indian toilet just like we did people didn't used to have problems with their knees in those days now all the food is contaminated with chemicals that's why people develop pain in their knees they never used to have problems in their knees the elderly didn't have problems in their knees Nope. Why not? They just didn't. There must be a reason. Who knows? They must have been doing some exercises or something. I've never had a headache in my life. Maybe once in a year I'll get a, a slight fever. It's a simple straight fact. My son gets migraines. I say, idiots, I've never had a headache nor a migraine. My vision is weak. That is it. Do you think that it's because of using the western toilet that people's knees get stiff? No, not from the western. Western toilet is comfortable. Then why? just because of age and wear and tear western toilet is easy to sit on high up i even bathe sitting on a chair so how did they do it in the old days 
sitting on a stool or squatting. Even now, people go in the fields. So you don't think it's easier on one or the other to get it out? Nope. Thanks. Thank you very much. My grand aunt, Sarla Bhalla, at age 67. Do you go to the bathroom easily? Not so. The system isn't so good now. If I overeat, I have a lot of trouble. Gas develops. Do you get constipated? No, I don't get constipated. Well, sometimes it happens. I just can't eat heavy. Do you go every day? Yeah, yeah, nothing like that. Does it come out soft and easily? Yes, not a problem. You don't have to push? No, 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 nothing like that. Everything is good. Just my legs are bad. When you were growing up, there were no Western toilets. So how do you find the difference between Western toilets and Eastern toilets or Indian toilets? My knees don't bend. So what can I do? That's why I like these ones. When I go out, it's a problem. Have to keep looking for a seated one. Which one do you think is clean? This one. I see. In the old days, how did elderly people manage when they... Oh, there was a chula. How? It's like a sitting one from the side. Okay, I didn't know. It was like a seated commode, the same thing. There were? We used to have one. Your grandparents also had the same. Like a chula. It's easy. Ah, so you don't see any advantage or disadvantage to either? No, no, this is great. It's easy. And is it easy to clean yourself? Don't we have a jet? Oh, you clean with a jet. So, what do you do? Use cloth or paper? <laughs> Satya Lakshmi Komar Raju is a naturopathic physician in Hyderabad. And then it has become a fashion now to provide the Western toilets in all the public places. So you would say that the Western style commode is gaining in popularity in India? In urban areas, yes. One is because they have some problem in the knees, uh, they're using Western commodes, and because it is available, they're using, and then their knees are becoming uh, stiff, and then uh, uh, they're unable to use them properly, efficiently. Would you say anatomically and physiologically there are some advantages to using the Indian-style commode in the uh, you know uh, trajectory of the colon? Definitely. <laughs> <laughs> what did I do to you? <laughs> And then uh, treating sewerage is another nuisance and most of it is going back to the surrounding villages where they are not actually uh, equipped to handle this kind of uh, mess. Waste. Waste. And uh, do you have any comments about the use of water versus uh, toilet paper in uh, uh, personal hygiene? We don't use paper here. It's considered quite unhygienic here. So. As a physician, would you would you agree that it's far more unhygienic? It's irrelevant in any case. Ah, but there's fecal oral transmission of bacteria if you're using your hands with water. No, I don't think so. Oftentimes you go to public toilets, there's no place to wash your hands, no soap available. And it's a difficult situation in any case, with or without paper. <laughs> they don't use, no point in talking about it. <laughs> Timothy Golston practices nursing for the homeless in downtown San Francisco. 
I could see how people would think that it would be easier to go on a Western toilet because all you have to do is sort of like plop down and use toilet paper as opposed to using the jug and manipulating all of that. Especially if you developed a whole lot of Western habits, you probably need to sit down and concentrate and go uh, or something like that because you've gotten really constipated. You have to like sort of like unloosen everything. You got to go through a little bit of a ritual and then sit down. Maybe the ease comes with all the complications of the culture. As a nurse, you know, I mean, it's best to just go sit down, do your business and get going. It's not good to have all those magazines and books and the library and all that, <laughs> you know. Well, I think you're right that it is very cultural. You never see uh, books in an Indian toilet because uh, books are sacred and the toilet is not. <laughs> <laughs> but as we heard from my cousin, she, she apparently reads on the toilet too. If you were really attached to your rituals, you could do that in the squatting position as well. I mean, you could spend a fair amount of time in a squatting position if you're accustomed to squatting. Yeah, I can see that. But again, this Western thing, like my son, he would have to have a cigarette to go in the morning. It just was easier for him to go. And of course, it was a problem because he'd be smoking in the bathroom. Nobody wants that. Well, I think the thing is, is that the mind needs to be relaxed because the mind is directly connected to the colon. Yes. <laughs> right. Yeah, you know, free your mind and your ass will follow. <laughs> Great, thank you. Dhakridhan and da kita ditta, kitatun nagatit takita dharita tete kata gadi gene da da kita the gadinger da kita the gadinger da kita the gadinger di. Our concluding poem. To sit or to squat, that is the question. Whether it is nobler in the bum to suffer the splashes of brackish water, or to bend deep into the knees despite the trouble, and without pushing, evacuate. To wipe, to flush, no more, and by a wash to say we end the strain and the thousand natural sounds that the colon inherits. Tis a constipation devoutly to be shunned, to wipe, to flush, to wash, perchance to stream. Aye, there's the rub, for in that wash of bum what dreams may come when we have shitted out this mortal waste. Must give us rest, there's the respect that makes shitting by sitting take so long. For those who would bear the time, the commoders are wrong, the proud man's consuming, the pangs of impacted feces, the leavings delay. The insolence of the office and the bums that patient merit of the unsuccessful trials, when he himself might his water make with a bare bumpkin. Who would these farters bear to grunt and sweat under a sedentary life, but that the dread of hemorrhoids, the undiscovered alley from whose no shit returns, 
puzzles the will and makes us rather bear those ills we have than squat like others that we know not of. The squatting does make cowards of us all, and thus the knees of resolution are crippled or with the pale cast of replacement, and enterprises of great flush and forget would disregard their bowels turned awry and lose the name of action. Soft, you know, the fair log, bricks in all thy orifices, be thou all my feces forgotten. Neijing Now was written, edited, recorded, and produced by Dr. Jayshree Chander. Website by Takahiro Naguchi. Tabla and Manjira played by Jayasi. Compositions from Pandit Swapan Choudhury. Bass guitar by Pedro Ordonez. Drum set by Jisi Garcia. Multi-instrumentalist Dave Rosenfeld. Concluding poem written by Jayasi. Distributed by Gypsy Jace Productions. Found at gypsyjace.net. J-Y-P-S-Y-J-A-Y-S dot N-E-T. You can find us on the web at neijingnow.org. N-E-I-J-I-N-G-N-O-W dot O-R-G. Neijing Now is an entirely listener-supported endeavor. Please donate generously if these shows are beneficial and enjoyable. Your support is essential to keep this program alive.